Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. In 1959, we were the largest number of blacks ever admitted to Harvard. This podcast is about being black in America for over 80 years. It is Tuesday, December 19, 2023. Coming up, BB says the two-state solution is dead. What's left is genocide or ethnic cleansing. Richard Gisbert has another Listening Post report, and journalist Sank Uger's name was written on an Israeli bomb. We begin with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu admitting that the two-state solution is dead. Here's Crystal Ball from the Breaking Points News Channel to explain. Crystal, what are you taking a look at? Well, Americans have, for years, been fed a pack of lies about Israel and Palestine. These lies enabled successive administrations of both parties to offer nothing but unconditional support for Israel and nothing but unrestrained contempt for Palestinians. American presidents stood meekly by as the Israeli governments blatantly violated international law year after year. Israel aggressively expanded settlements in the West Bank, imposed a brutal blockade of Gaza-aided settler violence, passed apartheid-style laws, and used a vast bureaucracy to put a veneer of legality on seizures of Palestinian homes and land. Our support for this criminal and inhumane status quo was enabled by an elaborate mythology surrounding the so-called two-state solution. Now, there are a number of components to this myth. First, that Palestinians have received multiple generous offers of statehood and have unreasonably rejected them. Second, that the Israeli government would love nothing more than to come to some sort of a two-state peaceful resolution but have no, quote, partner for peace. Every part of all of that is a lie. Fortunately, this mythology is actually crumbling in real time, killed by friendly fire, you might say, as Netanyahu himself has announced. Not only will he do everything in his power to block a Palestinian state forever, but that he is proud to have been a primary impediment to the dream of a peaceful settlement. In a press conference last week, he said the following, quote, You and your journalist friends have been blaming me for almost 30 years for putting the brakes on the Oslo Accords and preventing the Palestinian state. That's true. I'm proud that I prevented the establishment of a Palestinian state because today everybody understands what that Palestinian state could have been now that we've seen the little Palestinian state in Gaza. Now, this of course is a transparent bit of blame shifting from Bibi. He would absurdly have you believe that those who supported the Oslo process were to blame for October 7th rather than him, the dude who promised you could keep Palestinians locked in a cage forever with zero consequence, who cynically built up Hamas as a Machiavellian means to an end of blocking Palestinian statehood, whose administration was so distracted by his own corruption scandals and pandering to extremist settlers that they completely ignored the October 7th planning that was happening right in front of their faces. But I rather appreciate Bibi's comments here nonetheless because they are the beginning of the end of our national delusions about the two-state solution. Now, literally no one should be surprised that Bibi is bragging about blocking a Palestinian state. This has been his entire political program and raison d'etre for decades. But such comments and naked admissions rarely make it into the U.S. press. They're said in Hebrew for an Israeli domestic audience and American politicians just pretend they didn't hear them. Or 
They pretend that Bibi is some outlier, a fringe political character inconsistent with mainstream Israeli politics. This is all false. In fact, Netanyahu gives himself far too much credit as the sole bulwark against the Palestinian state. In fact, the various Israeli prime ministers differ not in their opposition to an actual Palestinian state, but in their tactics for permanently blocking one. So first, it's simple enough to demonstrate that opposition to Palestinian statehood has been a permanent feature of Israeli politics no matter the prime minister. Maybe most illustrative is this chart. Under every Israeli prime minister, moderate, liberal, or right-wing, from lionized hero Yitzhak Rabin to the odious Netanyahu, year after year, illegal settlement building continued and the settler population exploded. Now, why, you might ask, is this a key fact? Because the entire purpose of these settlements is to block a Palestinian state. Don't ask me, ask the settlers themselves. One of their activist leaders was recently interviewed by Isaac Chotner, and she explained it very plainly, quote, the world, especially the United States, thinks there is an option for a Palestinian state. And if we continue to build communities, then we block the option for a Palestinian state. We want to close the option for a Palestinian state, and the world wants to leave the option open. It's a very simple thing to understand. And she's right. It is indeed a very simple thing to understand. The consistent commitment to settlements under every single Israeli government exposes the lie that Bibi is somehow an outlier in his opposition. Now, here's another key fact in understanding the consistent opposition to Palestinian statehood. Let's allow Professor Norman Finkelstein to lay this one out. Every year, every single year, the United Nations General Assembly passes a resolution called Peaceful Settlement of the Palestine Question. And every year, it lays out the terms which I just described. The terms of the settlement are anchored, embedded in international law. Every year, the vote is the whole world, which is to say, approximately 190 countries on one side embracing those terms, including the Palestinian representative organizations, and on the other side, it's usually the United States, Israel, and several South Sea islands the Marshall Islands, Palau, Tuvalu, Tonga, on the other side. So next time you hear someone lazily parrot the mantra that Israelis have no, quote, partner for peace on the Palestinian side, you might challenge them on whether Palestinian extremists have really been the primary impediment to peace when the UN record here that Norm Finkelstein lays out is extraordinarily cut and dry. And just wait until they find out what the Likud party charter has to say about from the river to the sea. But you might say, what about Oslo? What about Camp David? Weren't Palestinians offered statehood through the Clinton negotiations? Weren't some Israeli prime ministers genuinely committed to this process? The answer is yes, some were committed to Oslo. But unfortunately, Oslo was never meant to achieve full statehood. Even the venerated prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin, assassinated by a Jewish extremist over Oslo, probably the most committed to this process of any prime minister, even he admitted he never envisioned a full Palestinian state. Interestingly, current Bibi senior advisor Mark Regev just explained this to Piers Morgan. Take a listen. Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister of Israel who wanted to make peace with the Palestinians, who's 
was the Prime Minister at the time of the signing of the Oslo Accords, he gave a speech and he was very clear. He said that the Palestinians will have less than a state. Yitzhak Rabin said, the man who was shot for his efforts to move forward on the peace process. He said that the future Palestinian areas will have to be demilitarized. He said the Jordan Valley, that area on the eastern edge of the Palestinian territories would have to remain under Israeli control. The idea that a Palestinian area will have to be demilitarized in any future uh, settlement, that's common sense. Another important moment of honesty there. So what does he mean by less than a state or state minus, as Netanyahu has called it? Well, Palestinian-American activist and intellectual Edward Said laid out in a famous piece what that has meant in opposing Oslo. He argued that far from a process to achieve statehood, Oslo envisioned placing Israeli security needs above actual Palestinian statehood and autonomy in perpetuity. This led Said famously to write, let us call the agreement by its real name, an instrument of Palestinian surrender, a Palestinian Versailles. So actual statehood was never on the table, but something short of that was, and plenty of Palestinians did support trying to achieve that negotiated settlement. Which brings us to the supposed conclusion of the Oslo tale as routinely recited by American politicians and media outlets. In their telling, Bill Clinton came tantalizingly close to a peace deal in 2000 at Camp David, only to see Yasser Arafat walk away from a generous offer over the smallest of differences. Now, at this point, you should be unsurprised to learn that this narrative is also nothing but invented ass covering to serve the Israelis and their American benefactors. To start with, the deal was very lopsided, far from the generous offer that it's routinely presented to have been. It required extreme concessions from the Palestinians, including security demands, which would have divided the West Bank into three cantons, effectively continuing some of the worst parts of the Israeli occupation, creating not a state, but a series of Bantu stands with no control over airspace, no military, no control over their own borders with Egypt and Jordan. Even one of the top Israeli negotiators, Shlomo Benami, later admitted, if I were a Palestinian, I would have rejected Camp David as well. What's more, far from Arafat walking away, negotiations actually continued. Formal negotiations continued at Taba until right-wing Israeli governments were elected to kill the process entirely, and the rest, at least for our purposes today, is history. So to sum up, the deal was far from generous, Arafat had some good reasons to walk away, but he actually didn't, and it was the Israelis who put the final nail in the coffin of Oslo with help from extremists, let's be clear, on both sides. But don't take my word for it. As our own Ryan Grimm has been pointing out, the right-wing hawk, Zbigniew Brzezinski, set Joe Scarborough straight in spectacular fashion on the Camp David fairy tale many years ago. Take a listen. You can't blame what is happening in Israel right now on the Bush administration. Yes, you can. No, you look, can't. Well, look, Joe. Okay, let's go back to 2000, Dr. Brzezinski. You and I both know Bill Clinton gave Arafat and the Palestinians everything you know, you they have could have wanted. such a stunningly superficial knowledge of what went on that it's almost embarrassing to listen to you. Oh, is it? If you were to look more closely at what happened in the Clinton-Camp David discussions, you would know that what we have just said is absolutely wrong. There were all sorts of provisions and catches to the so-called proposal, and it wasn't rejected. The negotiations went on in Taba, and then there were elections in Israel and Sharon came in, and everything got aborted. Now listen, I think it'd be fair to look at this history and say, even so, given what we know today, Arafat should have just taken what was on the table in 2000, because it's gotta be better than the horror, pain, and bloodshed that we are witnessing, very possible. I think it's also fair to point out that Palestinian violence in the Second Intifada in particular is what helped to turn the Israeli public away from those politicians promising a settlement and toward those 
openly advocating for brutality, leading to a parade of maniacs culminating in this Netanyahu government complete with overt genocidal psychos. But I think you can also see, when you look at all of the facts, there were legitimate reasons for Palestinians to oppose Oslo in its entirety. It wasn't just extremists bent on genocide who found the framework unacceptable and sought to undermine it. Now, in some ways, this past is irrelevant, since the thing that really matters is what happens next. But if there's one thing that's clear to me watching this conflict unfold, it's that the lies of the past, the narratives that color our understanding of this per current moment, are the most potent weapon enabling the atrocities that are unfolding today. So let's take a cue from Bibi and drop all the fakery. Biden can say two-state solution as much as he wants. Israelis do not want one. So what now? Israel's ethnic cleansing of Gaza is being witnessed in real time with Palestinian civilians broadcasting their own bombardment. Meanwhile, Israeli soldiers are streaming sadistic acts of humiliation with proof of an historic crime. The question Palestinians are asking urgently is whether it will make any difference this time. Here's a report from Richard Gisbert of the Al Jazeera Listening Post broadcast. You're at the listening post. We begin with a viewer warning. We will be examining some of the ugliest imagery that's been coming out of Gaza. Journalists are being killed in the Strip at a horrific rate. Just look at the numbers. And a Palestinian citizen of Israel on the toxic media scene there. The clampdown on freedom of speech. Israel's ethnic cleansing of Gaza goes on. The devastation deepens. According to the health ministry there, more than 18,000 Palestinians have now been killed by Israeli bombs. Of the survivors, the United Nations says that half are going hungry, deprived of sufficient aid because of Israel's blockade. The incarceration, bombing and starvation of Palestinians in Gaza on grounds of ethnicity is why experts in previous genocides are calling this one what it is. And what sets Gaza's suffering apart is the media age in which this is occurring, one of social media and smartphone ubiquity. We're getting this story in real time. Gazan civilians broadcasting their own bombardment, Israeli soldiers streaming sadistic acts of humiliation, proof of an historic crime taking place while there is still time to stop it. The global outrage dwarfs what architects of any previous genocide have had to contend with. The question that Palestinians are asking urgently is whether any of that will make a difference. This is the first genocide that we see in real time, and it's the victims themselves who are recording their own genocide. Appearing on camera, talking about what has happened to their families, to convey the reality, no matter how solid, how, no matter how difficult, no matter how bloody, to the rest of the world, even with their own dying breaths. Picking up your phone these days and going through your social media feeds comes with risks, such as finding yourself scrolling through a genocide, seeing what it's like to live under bombardment in a war zone that's more like a killing field. 
where one side has almost all of the firepower and vengeance on its mind. Where the fear is constant, the prospect of starvation more real by the day. Israel has locked international news crews out of Gaza. Palestinians are locked in, which makes the footage they capture on their phones invaluable, however difficult it may be to watch. Traditionally, all the images that we receive of wars have been filtered down through governments or through mainstream media. This time around, it's completely different. And now you see people around the world, particularly young people, foregoing traditional media channels. Why would I go through the mainstream media when I could just get it directly from social media and from people on the ground there? The fact that Western media have failed in, in giving truthful, accurate coverage of what is going on and have failed in informing the public of um, the larger picture of the Palestinian struggle for, for freedom drove a lot of people to social media. There's ample evidence of, of atrocity that's happening in, um, in Gaza, but the way that this evidence is, is reported on is highly ideological. We are not used to see this, this quantity of images by the victims calling for help or calling to stop the genocide. So it puts us in a new situation that are obviously those who understand what they are looking at, those who are not victims of the Israeli propaganda machine. They are enraged and we see huge protests people in the streets in support of Palestine. But alongside this rage, we have a European and American governments who are continuing to support this genocide. As for the Israeli social media space, it has become a breeding ground for anti-Palestinian hatred. Ever since Hamas's attacks on October 7th, there have been calls for revenge there that are now being answered and celebrated. Soldiers posting videos showing the humiliation of Palestinian civilians, laughing as they bulldoze cars and buildings, taunting a terrified population. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported that one Israeli army unit has its own telegram channel that puts out similar stuff, material that's meant to mask a lack of progress on the battlefield, setbacks like the ambush in Shajaya, northern Gaza, this week, that killed 10 Israeli soldiers. Homicidal language is also proving popular on Israel's music charts through songs and lyrics like this. That track is at number one in a country where singers and soldiers can now make it big on social media by either calling for violence or dishing it out. You have the Israeli soldiers themselves posting their spoils of war on social media that are in direct contradiction to the official Israeli military narrative, which is one of a just moral war against Hamas. Videos of them looting homes, stealing jewelry, describing Palestinian women as whores while digging through intimate items inside their homes. Images meant to galvanize Israeli society and bring more support um, from the home front towards these Israeli soldiers who are clearly on this path of revenge in Gaza. The way that Palestinians are being perceived uh, in these songs, the references to them as dogs and cockroaches and particular references to, to a biblical and, and historical uh, context. 
um, it's terrifying. It, it makes you realize that this is not about what happened in October 7th. There's something much deeper and much older than all, all of this. And I think it is actually notable that a lot of pro-Palestine Twitter is simply just sharing um, Israeli social media output because the Israeli soldiers and the Israeli officials themselves are making it very clear what their intention is. They're celebrating Palestinian death and displacement. So there is no need for, for anyone to kind of uh, add an explanation. They're just sharing what we're seeing. Images like this, which can evoke the unthinkable. Palestinian men in northern Gaza, initially purported to be Hamas fighters, stripped to the bare essentials by Israeli soldiers, put to shame. A group we later learned included a well-known doctor, a journalist, academics. The Israeli military says it did not release the images intentionally that some of its soldiers posted them on social media and that doing so was needless and humiliating. However, that telegram channel, the one reportedly controlled by the Israeli military, has posted material that is similar, if not worse. The images have shocked overseas audiences, but not Palestinian ones, that see them as a reiteration, scaled up, of the displacement and occupation they have known since 1948. We shouldn't fall into the trap of the newness because this is part of the way that the Israeli regime treats Palestinians from 48. This is not the first time. We saw them many times throughout those 75 years. These are images that resonate for me with other images. Images, you know, from the Holocaust. Palestinians were racialized by the state of Israel uh, in a way that it was predicted that they will be constantly concentrated and killed. What we see now is a change in the scale and in the speed and circulation of images that uh, provoke a rage and calls by uh, millions around the world to stop this genocide. And they began sending these messages to their own people. If you watch Israeli TV, since this whole thing started, Channel 12, 13, and 14 in particular, have done nothing but play these videos in every TV uh, program, political debate. And I don't want to even a They are trying to tell the ordinary Israeli as a main target audience, do not worry, everything is under control. We still command that kind of relationship with the Palestinians. They are still humiliated. We are still in charge. <laughs> <laughs> will be one day, right, when the Israelis will wake up to a reality that they committed genocide. So I think that we have to ask how those state apparatuses like media, like education, are being mobilized in order to lead to such a genocide the channel run by the army, I don't want to be shocked by this channel because the state of Israel runs like this channel. If that means defying a UN General Assembly resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire this week, then so be it. Mainstream media outlets outside of Israel will also have some questions to answer down the road. Potentially difficult ones about complicity in the erasure of a people. Protesters demanding an immediate ceasefire, be they in the UK, France, 
the US, wherever, complain that mainstream news coverage in those countries reliably reflects the pro-Israel position of the governments involved. And corporate news channels that usually do not shy away from shocking imagery, not least because of the ratings involved, have been acting somewhat out of character. Too often, they've had to be led to these stories, to disturbing, dangerous, newsworthy images like these by the hand of social media, by the people. When we do see the mainstream media covering these images, it's really only after several days of these stories going viral on social media, where you almost see the mainstream media being forced into covering these kinds of stories. The genocidal rhetoric uh, within Israeli society and pop culture, that has barely made a blip on the radar of the mainstream media. Instead, the mainstream media focus on the mass hysteria on college campuses. All right, continuing with our big story here today, college campuses across the country are divided over the Israel-Hamas war leadership. Surrounding whether or not uh, from the river to the sea or certain chants for a free Palestine are genocidal or not. So there's this huge disconnect between what we are witnessing on social media, the unfolding of an actual genocide versus what we're seeing on mainstream media. Trying to appeal to the sensibilities and to the some moral frame of reference to mainstream media is a losing game. Uh, because by definition, mainstream media, corporate media, serves the interest of corporations of those in power, those with the money and the political clout, and the relationship to the state system. All of these factors in the way we understand and, and communicate the world to one another. So expecting that mainstream media is suddenly going to wake up to the atrocities being uh, taking place in Gaza is just not gonna work. They do not exist for this kind of job. The New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists has been tracking the killing of media workers since 1992 and says of Gaza that it's never seen anything like this. Tarek Nafa is here with more. 89 journalists, that's the number killed by Israeli forces since October 7th, according to the government media office in Gaza. That's more than one media worker killed every day. Compare that to Ukraine, where 17 journalists have been killed since the war began almost two years ago. Or Afghanistan. More media workers have been killed in Gaza than Afghanistan has lost since 2001. What's perhaps most disturbing is the way that journalists and their families are being targeted, threatened and killed. This week, Al Jazeera Arabic journalist Anas al-Sharif buried his father, who was killed in an Israeli airstrike on the Jabalia refugee camp. He revealed that prior to his father's killing, he had received threats from Israeli military officers telling him to stop his coverage and go south. The CPJ says there appears to be a pattern of journalists in Gaza receiving threats and subsequently their family members being killed. Israel has a history of killing reporters, then obfuscating the facts around their deaths. In 2019, a UN commission found Israeli snipers had intentionally shot and killed Palestinian journalists in Gaza's Great March of Return, knowing they were clearly recognizable as such. 
More recently, Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank killed Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akla, then denied they had done so before eventually admitting she was shot, but by accident. The deliberate targeting of journalists is a war crime. Israel denies doing that, but that fails to square with the unprecedented mass killing by Israeli forces, the testimonies we're hearing from Gaza. Thanks, Dark. Since October 7th, little has been heard from Palestinian citizens of Israel. They are a significant minority in the country. There are two million of them. They're the descendants of those who remained within the borders of Israel following the mass displacement of Palestinians in 1948. They are second-class citizens there, and that has been made obvious over the past two months. Hundreds have been arrested for their social media posts criticizing Israel's assault on Gaza. Demonstrations by Palestinians demanding an end to the war have been banned outright. We have spoken to a number of Palestinian Israeli media figures about the atmosphere of censorship, suspicion and repression. Most have turned down our requests for interviews. They fear the repercussions for good reason. One who did agree to speak with us to provide the listening post with a Palestinian perspective of life inside Israel these days is Rami Yunus. He's a journalist and former television host. I think the best way to describe what it feels like right now to be a Palestinian citizen of Israel is utter and complete paralysis. It's just like, you know, let's start again. In Israel, there are around nine and something million citizens. People around the world don't really know that, but 20% of Israel's population are Palestinians. Technically, we are Israelis. We have Israeli passports, we have Israeli uh, ID cards, we are citizens of Israel. But I think at the moment, there's no shortage of evidence that shows that for at least 20% of the population of this country, it doesn't feel like a democracy. There's always been restrictions on freedom of expression and freedom of speech when it comes to Palestinian citizens of Israel. But, you know, post-October 7th was probably one of the worst weeks of my entire life. Uh, the atmosphere was terrifying, uh, horrifying. There have been few uh, uh, incidents and um, um, few scenes on Israeli media that I will never forget my entire life. I remember one guy looking at the camera, warning Palestinian citizens of Israel. I remember another incident where an Israeli soldier was on TV with his army uniform and he was talking to a Palestinian journalist. She was from the Israeli Broadcasting Corporation. He was supposed to do like a small report on Palestinian citizens of Israel and then all of a sudden this guest on the panel looks at her and says something like, in the before times, such monologues would be labeled as, you know, fringe and maybe that, you know, TV personality would get even fired. Now it's mainstream. There's one channel, Channel 14, who makes uh, Fox News look like the most progressive, amazing, 
הניוס צ'אנל בעולם, זה אינסיין מה שקורה שם. הכל חרב, הכל נגמר, אין כבישים, אין בתים, אין בית אחד שלם, הכל נהרס. בקיצור, החבר'ה נתנו פה עבודה, ואנחנו רק בתחילת הדרך. עד המומנט, אם אתה רואה את הכי פופולרי צ'אנל בישראל, צ'אנל 12, ואם אתה רואה את צ'אנל 14, אתה לא תראה הרבה הבדלים. נכנסים לעזה במטרה לנקום. צריך להיות מקסימום גופות. אני חושב שהגרעית הדיסאפוינטמנט היא מהארץ, להיות ‫-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-ה-
and they write down your name, what you do, where you work. You don't want to end up on that group because you know you're not going to get any protection from the police. In a reality where so many Israelis carry guns in the streets now, and if they meet someone they recognize from that group, uh, uh, Nazi hunters, it could become catastrophic. You have to not only navigate the toxicity of Israeli media, the Israeli government, and the Israeli mainstream, but you have to also be very smart uh, in how you navigate the toxicity of Israeli uh, uh, social media. It's very hard to find Palestinian you know, uh, public figures who are willing to go on camera. And I only agreed to do this interview now where I'd feel, you know, somewhat safer than in the past, you know, a uh, few weeks. How long can you stay silent? And um, again, um, as someone who's been, I'm a journalist, I made a career out of being, you know, outspoken and critical. Um, so this is the time, this is the time to speak up. I believe we need to find a way to navigate this new reality that we have to deal with now. And we do need to find new ways to keep telling our stories and to keep you know, exposing the, the truth and to push back against people who deny the right to know the truth. Finally, a viewer messaged me on Twitter a couple of weeks back about our coverage of Gaza. She wrote, have been a loyal watcher of Al Jazeera for years. But as appalling as this war is, there are still other stories. Good journos must know this is too much. Now, we are conscious of the stories that we have chosen to set aside as we go all in on Gaza. Big stories. COP28, Ukraine, Sudan. Significant elections in Argentina and Poland. It is a long list. None of those stories are about a genocide, though, that there is still time to stop. And the media angles, the coverage, the way the narrative around Gaza is framed is so central to the way that this story is understood and misunderstood, there is just too much there for a program like ours. This is not the time for us to look away. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. Journalist Sank Uger's name was written on an Israeli bomb alongside other social media figures who have been critical of Israel. Here is Anna Kasparian. The same Israeli army that slaughtered three of its own people as they were pleading for help in Gaza have decided to write the names of American citizens who are critical of its practices on the very bombs that they drop on civilians in the Gaza Strip. So this was shared on X, formerly known as Twitter. And if you can't see the names clearly, I can tell you which names are included. You see the name of MMA fighter Jake Shields on there, scholar and YouTuber Mohammed Hijab, journalist and academic researcher Suleiman Ahmed, Dr. Anastasia Maria Lupus, and uh, yes, you also see Cenk Uger's name right there on the right-hand side at the very top. And uh, Cenk, I, 
mean, look, I'm curious how you feel seeing your name on. I mean, obviously, the IDF has taken notice of your commentary, the fact that you have the audacity to be critical of their practices, critical of their slaughter, and yes, slaughter of thousands of children, little kids. You've been critical of that. They don't like it. So yeah. they write your name on the bomb that they're going to drop. A bomb that's been supplied by our government, by the way, using US taxpayer money. Yeah. Going toward a country that's incredibly wealthy and can provide health care to every single one of its Israeli citizens. Okay. Uh, interesting how they feel entitled to that help as they write the names of American citizens on those bombs. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So, okay, so first of all, uh, those bombs are going to murder Palestinian civilians. Uh, America should not be sending one more bomb to Israel. Uh, their leader Netanyahu has openly said that he's proud that he prevented a Palestinian state and will keep doing so going forward. So he is not for peace, he is for endless war. He has committed more war crimes, about 20 times the war crimes that Hamas has. He is a terrorist thug who revels in murdering Palestinian civilians. And oh my God, have I hurt your feelings by pointing out things that are indisputably true? Well, good, I'm gonna tell the whole world all of your war crimes. And in the past, it was easy to muzzle American media. And all we would hear here in America, as the rest of the world heard reality, we would hear Israeli propaganda. Oh, Israel has a right to defend itself. That's why they had to kill 20 times the civilians that Hamas did. Hamas is terrible, awful terrorist for killing civilians. Well, we all agree. Israel, when they kill civilians, they're angels. Now, they butcher 20 times the civilians. When it comes to kids, it's way worse. Israel has killed about 300 times the number of kids Hamas killed. Hamas killed 36 kids. On October 7th, our heart broke for them, for those kids. Now, Israel has killed 9,000 kids, 9,000 kids with those bombs. And guys, if you're an American, you paid for that. And now Joe Biden is saying, let's give them 14 billion more. For what? Does it look like they don't have enough money to murder Palestinians? No, they've already murdered 19,000 Palestinians. There's a lot more to come. They say there's some Hamas fighters in there. They can't prove how many Hamas fighters. But everyone agrees, even the IDF says yes, the overwhelming majority of those are civilians. They're dropping gigantic unguided missiles into the middle of residential areas. Now, 90% of Gazans are homeless. Their houses have been destroyed. They've been, the whole place has been leveled by the terrorist Netanyahu. So you wanna write my name on a bomb that you use to murder children? Well, it doesn't bother me, okay? I don't care about my name, I care about the bomb. Two thirds of Americans say ceasefire for God's sake, stop murdering their children, stop it. Let me, let but me. our politicians are so incredibly corrupt. They say no, whatever Israel says, we will beg them. to. We, how can we help you to murder more kids? How can I help you, Joe Biden says. And yes, it is terrorism. When you murder 9,000 children, don't tell me that you have the most incompetent army in the world. Oh, golly gee, we can't drop bombs right at all. We just happened to murder 20 times the people that Hamas did, and it was all an accident, and they were collateral damage. He They say occupation
was Samer with a song called World Goes Blind. And that's it for this edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett.